the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a church, we refer to ourselves as the family of God, and we do so with scriptural precedence. In the Bible, the church is referred to as a family. In various places, we are called brethren or spiritual siblings of one another. We are part of what is called the household of the faith, Galatians 6.10, and the household of God, Ephesians 2. That's just an old word or a different way of talking about a family, the household. And we understand that this bond as family is, of course, through Jesus Christ and Him alone, which makes the bond that we have with other Christians stronger than even the biological or adoptive bond that we have with our physical family. It makes sense then that often Paul refers to himself as a spiritual father to particular believers and to particular believers as his spiritual children. The Corinthians, as we have seen, are no exception. And in our passage this morning, Paul explains his spiritual parentage or his spiritual fatherhood to the Corinthians, but for a very unique reason. In so doing, he shows us what a spiritual father is, not just in terms of his title and relationship, but more importantly, what a spiritual father literally is in his character, in his behavior, how he relates to his spiritual children. What we will see this morning is that the primary reason Paul considers himself and is the spiritual father of the Corinthians and others such as Timothy is because he was the one who led them to Christ. And that will be very important in our outline and in the passage. But as we unpack this passage, you will also see that these are traits that we all need to follow, especially if you are discipling someone, if you are teaching someone, if you are a pastor, elder, or have any role of spiritual leadership officially in the church or even spiritual influence on anyone that is a Christian. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. And I'm going to read our passage for this morning. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves continuing to study the uh, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians And we're getting to the end. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 17 in the NAS say this. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. This morning, we are going to look at a spiritual paternity test of sorts. 
And perhaps again this morning you see yourself as a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, a spiritual influence to someone. Maybe not in the same capacity as the Apostle Paul, but again, perhaps you are a discipler, you are a church leader, or perhaps you're just another brother or sister in Christ that is keeping someone accountable to their spiritual walk or a particular sin. Maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you have someone you consider a spiritual father, a mentor, a disciple, male or female. Maybe you're looking for a spiritual father. Maybe you're looking for someone to guide you, to answer your questions, to disciple you, to teach you. Whatever your spiritual situation may be, today's passage will be helpful for you as a believer in general spiritual parent or not, we will see these qualities as those that should be pursued by all Christians, but especially those who have an influence on other believers, which you could argue is, or at least should be, all Christians. And so very simply, as looking, looking at a spiritual father in the context of verses 14 through 17, I want to give you this morning four roles of a spiritual father. Four roles of a spiritual father. In other words, if you see yourself as a spiritual father to someone, or you see someone as your spiritual father, these are four tests to see if you, you are indeed what Paul says a spiritual father really is. Well, Let's jump right in and look at our first role of the spiritual father, and that is a loving corrector. A loving corrector. I find this in verse 14. I'd like to read that for you again. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And we've seen thus far that he has written to the Corinthians and he has been correcting them. He has been pointing out their sins specifically of pride the pride that is leading to division, a pride that exhibits a worldly wisdom, which is really foolishness for the Christian instead of the true wisdom of God. So there's a reason that Paul writes all of these things. And the goal, he says, was not to shame them. His goal is not to shame them. His goal is to admonish. And there is a difference. And as we get to verse 14, and by the way, after this passage or after the end of this chapter, you will see that he continues his admonishment because the pride, though, is the root sin, is not the only sin that we see. Or I should say the factions are not the only sin. If we just, if you look briefly into verse 5, you, you see that there is, or chapter 5 rather, there is gross immorality. There's incest, even incest, a type of relationship that is considered illegal by the non-Christian Roman law at that time. And so there's a lot going on here, and he takes a moment to explain why he is confronting their sin. And you see in verse 14 a noticeable change from his harsh tone that he has carried previously. And uh, this is is normal, right? We do this. Uh, There are times where we are rightly so and without sinning, stern with our children because of something they have done. We are stern because of the severity of their disobedience or their sin. We can do so biblically without getting angry. And then we may pause 
if we see that they're just getting scared or tuning out or not understanding, and we circle back and say, look, son, look, sweetie, I'm doing this because I love you. I know you may not understand this, but I need you to understand and see why this is wrong, and I need to show you sternly, severely, why this is wrong because I don't want you to get in trouble in the future, because I don't want you to go down that path of laziness or of sin in the future. And so we kind of take them and really any discipline of children or, or even within the church must be out of love. It must be stern because we are addressing something that God killed his son for, so it's very serious, but we do so lovingly. And sometimes because our emotions and our words fail us, we actually need to stop in the conversation change our tone and say, look, I love you. This is why I'm doing this. That's admonishment. The reality is, if the Corinthians take Paul's words to heart, they will be ashamed, and rightly so. It is good and natural for the Christian, when his sin is confronted, to be ashamed, to feel shame. But there's a difference between feeling shame and trying to shame people. Paul's end goal was not shame, and that's what he's saying. His point is to admonish. Well, what does it mean then to admonish? It means to exhort. It means to plead, even beg someone to repent. And the idea of admonishing someone is correction, which, of course, involves reprimanding. You can't correct someone by saying, oh, it's okay, you're all right. That's not correction. That's enabling. That's feeding the sin. So correction must involve reprimanding. And again, parents do this all the time, or at least they should. And similarly, Paul is doing so as the Corinthians' spiritual parent, their spiritual father. And it's important to understand that when you are admonishing, you are to appeal not to the emotions, but to the mind. And we've seen him do this in so, from so many different angles. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand who we are that you are lifting up? We are mere servants and stewards. Do you understand the difference between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom? He's not appealing to emotions. And this is a danger that we can often fall into. We want to stroke people's egos. We don't want them to feel shame. And so we go the opposite. And instead of reprimanding, we say, hey, you're doing all right. We're all sinners. But that doesn't help. That doesn't help. I, I found even in the church these days, the, the people that we admire the most are not those who admit their sin and show how Christ was victorious over that sin in their lives. We just admire the people. Oh, oh, he or she are so open. Look how they fail, and they're so open about it. They're so open about it, but there's no change. There's no repentance. There's no anyone coming in and admonishing. It's just, oh, thanks so much for sharing, and that's it. That is not how the church works. That is not how the Christian life works. 
Jesus didn't just come and preach and not die on the cross. There was a penalty. There was a payment. There was something other than emotions that needed to be paid for this sin. And so it is with admonishment. It appeals to the mind. There has to be an intellectual recognition that what is being done is sin and why it is sin. And by the way, because the Bible says so, is plenty. It is enough. There must be more than an emotional shift that's going to change next time the emotions strike up again. There must be more than an emotional reaction that you are looking for. Again, there needs to be an intellectual recognition of what is wrong and then what needs to be done. And we see Paul doing this again throughout 1 Corinthians. And to highlight the fact that it's about the mind, the word admonish in the Greek literally means to put in mind. And we know that the usage is everything we've said said thus far about admonishing. But literally, it means to put in mind, to show them their fault. Now, when admonishing, you are trying to have a correcting influence on someone. Again, Correcting is to correct because something is wrong, something is off, something is broken about their worship, their obedience, their walk with God. It is not trying to correct their feelings. It is not trying to correct according to the status quo or to worldly wisdom or even a a church culture. It is correcting towards what is right, and that is the standard of God. And so in doing this, the goal is not to cause bitterness. It's not to provoke someone to anger. That may result because we are all proud and we don't like to be corrected. But it's about correcting this person's thinking so that God is the goal. And you see, a lot of times we rebuke, not biblically, we admonish, but not biblically because we're annoyed. And so we want that person to be shamed. We want that person to repent not unto God but unto us. Admit what they did was wrong to us, and that's all wrong. The loving nature of admonishment in general and also in Paul's specific situation here is emphasized with this term in verse 14, beloved children. Not only is he reminding them of his spiritual paternal place in their lives, he is also reminding them of his love for them. This is so important, especially when rebuking the proud and specifically for the sin of pride, as Paul is doing here, because the proud do not easily accept rebuke. You come on strong, they're going to defend even stronger. And that's why it's so important that you as a spiritual father or just as a Christian brother or sister, don't just play the role of corrector, but loving corrector, loving admonisher. You see, admonishing is also forward-looking and not just backward-looking. It's not just highlighting someone's sin, pointing out what someone has done wrong. You are also looking forward and warning them of the potential dangers should they continue in their sin, not only in their own walk with God, which is first and foremost, but also a, a difficulty within the church, perhaps even leading the church discipline and strained relationships, ruining their marriages, ruining their friendships, ruining their relationships with their children or just ruining their children 
in general. But again, first and foremost, we warn them of a strain or hindrance to their relationship with God, which is most important and starts with glorifying Him in all things. And that is, by the way, what you must be most concerned about when admonishing. We want to be most concerned about God's glory and God's glory in that individual's life. If it's just about, I just have to say something to appease your ego, to appease your sense of morality, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it biblically. If all you care about is happiness in your marriage, if all you care about is that person being a good dad or a better mother, you're not doing it right. You are not doing it right. If your first and foremost concern is you need to get right with God, not your primary concern in your heart is your own happiness or the happiness of your marriage and you know what you're supposed to say to convince them is to tell them you're most concerned about their relationship with God, but to truly believe that. To truly believe that. You see, we want, we want a happy church. We want a growing church. We want a church that meets again. We want a, we want a church that has high giving. And, and that, just, that just leads to the wrong thinking of Hey, why, why weren't you at church? Why weren't you at men's group? We, we, need, we need more giving. We need more people. We need to have good pictures on the website. We need to have numbers. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. If all you care about is logistics and practicalities, then you have not figured out what is most important in your relationship with other Christians, what is most important in your relationship with anyone. Because our relationship with unbelievers, our primary concern should be his relationship with God, right? And that's why the gospel comes first. And maybe on a side note, that's why you're lacking in your evangelism because you just, your primary concern is that they don't go to hell or that they enjoy church. Those are all great things, but your primary concern must be God's glory and that person's relationship with God. And so it is with admonishment. And with that goal in mind, what we want to see is a change in beliefs, a change in attitudes, and a change in behavior. We are trying to right a wrong in the eyes of God. So, when you compare this to shaming someone, so shaming versus admonishing, there are a couple key practical differences. And we've kinda, I've kind of mentioned these already. In admonishing, the goal is not to crush someone's self-esteem, but to bring about a realistic understanding of what's going on. And I want you to really think about how I phrase that. Because emotions are subjective. You want to give them a realistic understanding of what's going on, and the only objective truth is the Scriptures. Okay. Further, the goal is not to destroy, but to reclaim them for the Lord. You are a vessel, you are a tool in that particular situation of God to reclaim a straying believer. And mind you, this is not just major sins that I have to tell you about in the, in the practice of church discipline. 
It can be small habits. It can be uh, just one minor outburst that we all do, but still needs to be admonished because, again, it's not about the status quo. It's about God's glory. And when we are bothered, when we are annoyed, when we have our feelings hurt, we want to destroy. We want to bash them. We want to hurt them especially when their sin is directed at us or even worse, our spouses or our children. It's some, in some way, it negatively affects us and we get angry and in the name of admonishment, we just stab them in the back even more. We hurt them even more. It appeals to our pride and our sinful sense of vengeance. But a true spiritual father a true loving Christian brother or sister would not do that. It's a powerful reminder that Paul sees these wayward Christians who are saying negative things about him, who are violating his teachings, who are throwing him under the bus in the eyes or to these false teachers that have come in. He calls them beloved, beloved a word that comes from the infamous agape. And so the first role of a spiritual father is that of a loving corrector. The second role of a spiritual father, he or she is a paternal appointee. A paternal appointee. Look at verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. As God would have it, Paul was appointed as their spiritual father. And in this case, we're talking about fatherhood in the sense of being the one who led them to Christ. And I'll talk about that more later. And we see Paul reminding the churches of his spiritual parenthood in every epistle that he writes except for Romans. And in each case, he expresses how he gave them life through the preaching of the gospel. To emphasize not only his unique relationship to them, but also the responsibility and burden of admonishing them, Paul compares his role of spiritual father to the role of a spiritual tutor here. Both are being defined as in Christ to indicate that he's using an illustration. We're not talking about biological fathers or traditional academic tutors that someone would have back then or, or the wealthy would have back then, I should clarify. But it still helps to understand what a traditional or non-spiritual tutor would be. Back then, the wealthy would have tutors for their children. And in that culture, it was a a child trainer and a guardian. Usually it would be a trusted slave who was in charge of many things. And don't get caught up on what a tutor does uh, in our society today. This person who's called a tutor was in charge of getting the children to school or to their teachers. And outside of school hours when the child was under the authority and protection of their teacher, It was the tutor who would attend to the child, even serve as a teacher at home, which would be closer to how we use the term tutor or if you've hired a tutor, but it's a lot more involved than our modern-day tutors. 
whereas a modern-day tutor, especially in America, teaches your child in a particular subject for maybe an hour or so, the tutors in Paul's day would serve more like our modern-day tutor, guardian, and nanny. For example, and actually I think that the tutor back then would do a lot of things that we don't really have non-parents do these days. For example, back then they would be responsible for basic training and life skills as well as the morals, the morality of the young children. They would, as mentioned earlier, walk them to and from school. They would keep the kid out of trouble. They would physically protect them. And it's because of all of these different roles that the, the, the tutor had, to f- had that it's really hard to find an English equivalent, right? Because we don't really have someone that's not an actual biological or adopted parent that does all of those things. We think they do, right? We think our nannies are doing that, but they're not doing those things. Trust me, as much as you love your nanny, they're not doing these things. And it's so... When you look at your various English Bibles, right, I'm reading the NAS, it says tutor. Uh, in the ESV, and all of these give us a, a good idea of what the tutor did, but not, none of them are all-encompassing. The ESV says guide. The NIV says guardian. Uh, the King James says instructor. Uh, the New Living Translation has the phrase some dude. No, I'm just kidding. But don't use that version. Anyways, the tutor... Um, also had a stereotype of being a stern disciplinarian. Uh, For those of you who uh, went to college or university and were forced to take an art history class, Art History 101, you inevitably uh, had to study one or two vases from Paul's time and place, and they had drawings on the vases. Remember this? Often in those drawings... When a tutor was being depicted, he was holding a stick because it coincided with their role as well as their stereotype of being a very stern disciplinarian. And Paul also says in the verse that tutors come and go and are really only needed during the more formative years of a child's life when he is still learning how to speak, dress, and behave properly. That's where the illustration kind of falls apart. Uh, Because what Paul is implying is that tutors uh, will continue on throughout the existence of the church. So, moving on to Paul's illustration, to give you a practical example, Paul is the the, the spiritual father, but for example, Apollos would be an example of one of the Corinthians' tutors. He didn't lead them to Christ. He wasn't the one who was the, the original pastor in this context, but he came later and served as a tutor in this illustration. So, we know that Paul's not speaking negatively at all about spiritual tutors. They would be disciplers. They would be pastors. They would even be the other apostles that may have come into Corinth after him. They are very necessary in the church, and Paul, in fact, has spoken quite highly of the spiritual tutors such as Apollos thus far in the letter. He is, however, making a clear distinction between tutors and fathers in the church. So in the secular culture, although the tutor was responsible for the child, and you can think of anyone that you could see that role, uh, fitting that role in our modern society, and this still applies, but 
unlike the teacher, the principal, the nanny, the tutor, whatever in our day, it was the father who bore ultimate responsibility for the child. Yes, during school, even during distance learning, that child is under the responsibility of the teacher, the staff. When he's at summer camp, it is the camp counselor. When he's with the tutor, it is the tutor. When he's in Sunday school, it's a Sunday school teacher. But they don't hold ultimate responsibility for that child in his entire life. It is the father. And that is what Paul is saying about his spiritual paternity or fatherhood. Just as in the secular culture, so it was here. It was the father who bore ultimate responsibility for the child or children. So naturally, in this illustration, he has more authority than the tutor. Obviously, ultimate authority comes from God, but God places people in our lives and at different times that have a greater authority. Now, understand that a lot of this in this original context is not going to transfer directly to Grace Church of the Bay Area or whatever situation you find yourself in. But it still, of course, teaches us much. So, back to the verse. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is that no matter who their tutors are or have been, and regardless of how helpful and instrumental they have been or are in the Corinthian spiritual growth, they're still not fathers even if there were to be countless tutors in Christ for them. There would always only be one spiritual father. For those of you who are adults, you have had countless teachers and professors, but you only have one father. You have had countless friends, but only one father. And he goes on and he says, it doesn't matter how many tutors you have, it doesn't change this fact. The word countless can mean literally 10,000 or just a word to indicate innumerable, countless, right? My kids would say millions. We would say millions, right? Sometimes they say, well, what is that company worth? Millions. You literally mean 10 million or if you just, you know, or you just mean a big number. Man, that was a rough camping trip. How many mosquito bites did you get? Millions, right? Just to indicate countless. And regardless, Paul is just saying a lot and a lot. The point is there's only one spiritual father. And so, in explaining his loving admonishment, why he is admonishing them, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of his paternal relationship and fatherly affection for them. And the means of this relationship is very important And it speaks to the word in my categorization, paternal appointee, the word appointee. Look at the end of the verse. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, he was appointed to this role by God. It's not that God specifically came down and said, I appoint you as spiritual father. He hasn't done that to me. He hasn't done that to you. But in God's sovereignty, as you look back on it, you know that, oh, I I was appointed as this person's spiritual father or friend or the person who did this or that. 
not because you were given a, a, some sort of letter or a, an acceptance email, but because in hindsight you know, well, God was sovereign over this. He clearly had me there. And so Paul knows he was appointed by God. Why? Because it, it wasn't about Paul's greatness. It wasn't about his previous standing in the Jewish world. It was through, and this is very important, it was through the power of the gospel and the agency of Jesus Christ. It was through the power of the gospel and the agency of Jesus Christ. Because he is saying he is their, he was, is their spiritual father because he preached the gospel to them and they got saved through the gospel. And Jesus Christ. This is not just about apostleship or planning churches. This is the source of every conversion, every new birth, the power of God through His Word. And so, you put this all together, you have the Corinthian salvation through the power of the Word, the agency of Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You know, sometimes we go so far and we say, well, it's all God, it's all God, but He still uses us. He chooses to use us. And that speaks to everything from ministry uh, to secular elections, okay? In Christ Jesus, I became your Father through the gospel. Power of the Word, agency of Christ, ministry of Paul. And as important as these are, it's not enough for someone to use Scripture to teach and admonish or even to present the gospel and lead that person to salvation. It's not enough. The spiritual father must also live out the gospel and adhere to the Word of God, the violation of which leads to admonishing. In other words, he must also serve as a spiritual example. And that is our third role of the spiritual father. He is a spiritual example. A spiritual example. Look at verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Therefore, he starts with, or because of the fact that I am your spiritual father, I am exhorting you, literally begging or urging you, Corinthians, to copy me, Paul. The word imitator, to give you an idea of what this means, comes from the same Greek word from which is derived the English word mimic. It means to copy, to mimic someone else. A child is to mimic or to be like his parents, ideally. For the Corinthians, it's not so much in his ministry or travels or whatnot, but of course in his commitment to Christ and how he lives that out, in his spirituality. And by the way, when I said the child should mimic his parent, probably most, if not all of us, immediately thought to adults we know who have children who are not doing well, who, who are abusive, who are not walking with the Lord, who are hypocritical, who are just not good people. And so our thought is, well, no, a child shouldn't mimic his parents. And that 
speaks to exactly why this is so important that we need to be examples, spiritual examples. In the world of parenting, no matter what a parent says, it is ineffective without a good example to follow. In parenting, physical or spiritual, there is no place for do as I say, not as I do. There's no place for that. I remember in one of these uh, anti-smoking campaigns, they uh, staged a child actor. And he would uh, walk up to um, these adults. Uh, usually looked like people who were uh, younger adults in their 20s. And this little kid would ask for a cigarette or pull out a cigarette and start lighting it. He's like 10 years old. And of course the adults would be like, no, 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 don't do that. You don't want to do that. And yet they themselves are smoking. And of course the kid would say like, well, why not? You're doing it. And the point is, You can't just tell someone to do something and not be an example of it. You can't just say, do as I say, not as I do, which is so common that it's become a cliche, a common saying in our world. One of the most rewarding comments one of my sons can make when I explain something to them, either it's a a Bible verse or a, a biblical principle or, or even even something about just manners. And I explained, you know, you can't do that. You know, don't, don't do this or you should do this. And one of the most rewarding things he can say to me is look at me and go, oh, is that why you do such and such? Because in that moment, I realize that he has put two and two together. And that though I fail often, I have been able to exemplify what I am now asking him to do or not do. It is in that moment he recognizes that what I am saying is also what I believe and live, and I'm not just trying to teach him. And so, discipling someone involves not just teaching, but living out practically what you are teaching, and what you believe. And hopefully it's circular that you are also teaching what you are living. You are living what you are teaching, and you are teaching what you are living. In Paul's day, as it is in many places today, a new believer would have very little understanding or knowledge of the Christian life. They would have to be taught, but before that, the Corinthians or any place that he had visited would have seen the Christian life exemplified in Paul. And this kind of example should be true of all Christians and especially spiritual leaders. Once in a while, I get a question. You know, I, like I have a friend, uh, he's just getting interested uh, in, in Christianity and I just think, you know, our church or a lot of the churches I watch on live stream would just be too much with the expository preaching uh, and the singing of hymns. Do you know of a, of a church that is maybe more seeker-friendly? And basically what you are exemplifying for that person is that's what Christianity is. And you would never go to that church. 
you have condemned that church. You have tried to pull people out of that church, and yet somehow we think that we need to give people stepping stones to true Christianity, and that's just not the case. Uh, maybe there's a new believer and say, well, you know, I know they're, they're, they're living with their boyfriend, but I just want to slow it down, and I don't want to be too harsh because I don't want them to, to reject Christ. It's like if they're a Christian, they can't lose their salvation. You don't ease into Christianity. You don't ease into the fullness of God's glory. It is black and white. There are no stepping stones. There are stepping stones to perfection and holiness and full repentance in our lives, but there's no stepping stones in terms of what you teach and especially what you exemplify. And I think we get that. But you also get that hypocrisy is so prevalent and easy in our lives. And sometimes we think, you know, hypocrisy is only blatant hypocrisy. Like, you know, you, you talk about purity, but, but you're really uh, looking at pornography or having an affair or something like that. No, hypocrisy is everywhere, even in the little things. And, and I want to speak to even, even your spiritual fatherhood, maybe your discipleship of, a, of another man or another woman. Uh, for example, you cannot meet with a young, newly married Christian and explain the importance of communication to that young man, and you yourself, your wife, has no idea that you're meeting with that man because you haven't communicated with her what you're doing today. You, you, can't, you can't say, yeah, I just, I just long to be with, with God's people. I can't wait till shelter in place is over because the church is so important and, and the government is attacking us and the government is persecuting us. And you're not even tuned in right now. You're listening to this sermon later on. There's so many little areas of hypocrisy that we see. Look, sin is inevitable. We all stumble. We all give in to temptation. We all sin. Nobody who teaches or preaches God's perfect standard is himself perfect. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about outright hypocrisy. We're talking about not living out what you believe. We're talking about do as I say, not as I do. It wasn't so with Paul. He lived his life to the fullest in a way that matched his faith and his teaching. Not perfectly. He was human, he was a sinner but not hypocritically either. And so, spiritual fathers, spiritual leaders, all Christians, you must be a loving corrector. You must be a paternal appointee, whatever your role is. It is by God's design. And thirdly, you must be a spiritual example. Finally, you need to be a consistent model. A consistent model. Look at verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. For the first time, Paul mentions Timothy coming to Corinth. We know that Timothy has not yet arrived, at least when he was writing this letter. 
because chapter 16, Paul talks about if or when Timothy gets there. Uh, Timothy is also someone that Paul has as his spiritual father, or that has Paul as a spiritual father, rather. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, which is a letter written by Paul to Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as, I quote, my true child in the faith. And here, in 1 Corinthians, he refers to him as beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Again, Paul is speaking in spiritual terms. Timothy is not his biological child. We see in Philippians 2, uh, don't turn there because of the sake of time, but in Philippians 2, verses 20 through 22, he says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He's talking about Timothy. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So if there was anyone who was a model child who imitates his spiritual father, it was Timothy. And in fact, he is so much like Paul that he is sent by Paul to the Corinthians to be a model for them. Unlike the Corinthians, Timothy is not practicing or even accepting of gross sin. And as a representative of Paul, Timothy will be present in his stead. In other words, Timothy represents Paul as if Paul was there himself. And this is how the Corinthians are to treat him. The point of all this is that Timothy is to remind the Corinthians of how they are to live. That is, how Paul lives and what Paul teaches. It's not that the Corinthians will be learning these things from Timothy for the first time, but this is a reminder, as we see in the verse. Clearly, the Corinthians have forgotten Paul's teachings, if not intellectually, then at least practically as evidenced by their behavior. And the end of the verse tells us that what Timothy will exemplify to the Corinthians and for the Corinthians is nothing new. It's nothing unique. There isn't anything that Paul taught Timothy in regards to doctrine and Christian living that he did not teach the Corinthians. In fact, Paul makes it clear that he has taught these same things, quote, everywhere in every church. And what he teaches and has taught the Corinthians is generalized in the verse as my ways which are in Christ. The NIV says, my ways of life. And this would entail both teaching and behavior that he has exemplified, which are, of course, rooted in his union with Jesus Christ. And that's why he can set himself up as an example. Clearly, he only wants them to follow his doctrinal teaching and his Christian living, not his sin. His repentance from sin, yes. His confession of sin, yes, but not his sin. And even not even his particular ministry of, of going around from church to church. The Corinthians have their ministry where they are at. And we, we get this, right? You understand what he's saying. Not one of his teachings strays from Christ. And so, no matter what epistle, no matter what sermon, 
and even if you were one of his friends and alive and present at that time, no matter what conversation or act, Paul would be consistent wherever he was, in the church, in the synagogue, on the road, even in prison. To put it simply, Paul does what he says, and he says what he does. He is a consistent model in life and doctrine. For us, there's a danger of inconsistency that is to be expected because of sin, because of life. But the inconsistency can be far greater when you compartmentalize your life, which is often a result of sin. Let me explain. If you act differently at work than at home, and I'm not just talking about a professionalism or how you dress, you know what I'm talking about. If you are different at work than you are at home, it can be a symptom of the fear of man. It can be a symptom of the love of money. How you behave or what kind of places you visit may differ at home than when you are on a vacation or business trip. No, I'm not talking about museums. You know what I'm talking about. The inappropriate, sinful types of restaurants, clubs, massage parlors. If there are different types of places where at home and with your kids and you might run into a Christian, you won't go near certain things. You won't even go to the gym when you know it's full. You won't go to the public pool or the beach when you know all the teenagers and college girls are there. But on vacation, when there's no chance of meeting anyone you know, there's no accountability, there's total anonymity, you're compartmentalizing your life because it's an indication perhaps of legalism, hypocrisy, and it reveals, frankly, what is truly in your heart. And we could go on. There's so many examples of this. And the same goes for the kind of pastor, disciple, spiritual father you look for or seek to be. Is his life consistent? This is why we are so shocked in this age of modern technology when we so frequently listen to and watch our favorite pastors online or read their blogs and they fall or they stumble or they're disqualified, we are shocked because you can't see their life. You can't see if they're really living what they are teaching outside of the church. And, and this, is, this is not a knock. I, I'm not... I'm not bothered by this. I'm not offended by this. This is also why you have more respect for these men you've never met than you have for me. Because you've seen me get frustrated with my kids. You've experienced me get angry sinfully at you. But R.C. Sprawl's never done that. John MacArthur's never done that. Steve Lawson's never done that. Elizabeth Elliot's never done that to you. That's just how life is. That is our sin nature. But there needs to be a consistency of what you believe and what you teach. You're never going to be perfect, but are you striving for that? Let me give you a few reasons it's so important to have this kind of consistency. First, 
God's unchanging character and truth demand it. Let me say that in a better way. God's unchanging character and his unchanging truth demand it. In other words, he doesn't change based on your situation or our culture. He's consistent. His commands are consistent. You need to be consistent. A second reason it's important to have this kind of consistency is it shows the power of regeneration. It shows the power of regeneration. God's Holy Spirit is working in you. You're failing to give up. You're failing to give in. You're failing to just go back to old sins that you have already repented of, that you know you can conquer, that you, you, you're just too tired of fighting, you're too lazy, you're too uh, 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 envious of those who enjoy that sin. You're not showing the power of who you are and who is in you. Your consistency shows the power of regeneration in your life and to the world. Thirdly, consistency stands on God's objective truth rather than the world's subjectivity. Consistency shows that you stand on God's objective truth rather than the world's subjectivity. And so it it could be how you behave in different places. It it could be how you change your convictions by a, a, a new movement that comes up in society. It could even be an inconsistency at present, as I spoke earlier. Today you're like this with your kids. Later this afternoon at work you're like this, and then you're like this when it comes to politics, and then you're like this when it comes to, comes to something else, right? Yes, I yeah, 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 I know, but this matters. Yes, I know, God, and I, do, I definitely would never do that in front of my kids, but he said this. It's just, it's crazy. We need to be consistent. Next, consistency seeks God's glory in all places and in every situation. Consistency seeks God's glory in all places and in every situation. When you're on vacation, with your at, when you're with your kids, when you're with your kids, when you're lacking sleep and you just lost your job, and when you're with your kids and you got a good night's sleep and you just got a raise. Consistency seeks God's glory in all places and in every situation. And finally, consistency removes the opportunity for sin and hypocrisy. Consistency removes the opportunity for sin and hypocrisy because consistency does not rely on you. Consistency is not about you mustering the strength to be the same wherever you go. Consistency is rooted in the gospel. That's not you. That's Christ. Consistency is rooted in the scriptures. It's rooted in God's strength, God's ability, God's power. Now, don't think you're out of the equation. You need to do a lot. You need to pray more. You need to pray faster. You need to repent faster. You need to do it. But understand that if it's all about you, then you will never be consistent. All you're going to be is an egotistical legalist. And I've met many in my short time of ministry. Consistency removed the opportunity for sin and hypocrisy. 
Well, our time is long gone. Four roles of a spiritual father, a loving corrector, a paternal pointee, a spiritual example, and a consistent model. And understand, these are things that we all need to strive to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your sovereignty and the example of the Apostle Paul. Whether we find ourselves in a, a place of a great uh, leadership and uh, influence on other Christians, or we find ourselves just being an average layperson Christian, which inevitably means great and significant influence on other Christians and the world, may we seek to trust you to live out these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.